Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello there, I'm Jason Shulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today on the podcast... Hello there, I'm Jason Shulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today on the podcast is Peter Hoare. He's Senior Lecturer in Radio and Media History, Auckland University of Technology. He's here to talk about his new book, The World's Din... Listening to Records, Radio, and Films in New Zealand, 1880-1940. to It's published by Otago University Press in March 2018. Peter, welcome to the show. Hi, Jason. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, it's great to have you on. So, Peter, you say in the book that your, your task is to remix the records of history. Uh, how did you get interested in the topic of, of sound, records, radio, and film? Well, I've always been interested in music and sound in general. And um, the book that really got me into it was actually Johnson's History of Listening in Paris. Um, um, some people might be familiar with that, which opened up to me the whole world of sound history, doing doing history through sound, histories of sound. And it's a huge and diverse field. And there was nothing going on in New Zealand. So that was very fortunate for my PhD topic, as you can imagine. So, uh, But yeah, it's kind of come out of my interest in radio and audio in general, recording, music, all that sort of stuff. So we're, we're doing a podcast now, which is kind of the 20th, 21st century version of, of radio. How do we as uh, people and as New Zealanders, Americans, how do we listen? Yeah, this is interesting because um, the point I'm trying to make in the book is that we really started listening in new ways post-recording. Um, this changed our entire sort of, you know, phenomenological experience, if you like, of the world. It's, it's changed our sensorium in so many ways. Um, we take it for granted now, and part of what, what I want to do with the book was kind of make it new again, as it were. So we're so used now to the idea of just whenever we want sound, we have it. You know, we can download it, we can stream it, podcast, whatever you want. But of course, if you think back not that long ago, then you might be lucky to hear a piece of music once in your life. Having any sound from anywhere on tap 24-7, this, this really is, to me, a profound shift in how we experience things. Um, part of sound studies, part of what we're trying to do is, is kind of counter the ocular centrism that's informed a lot of Western metaphysics and uh, philosophy and so on. And so we're, we're giving room back to sound and letting it resonate through the way we think about the world. You, you write that the sounds of history in New Zealand have received little attention from historians. Uh, what gap were you trying to fill uh, in the literature about uh, New Zealand and the his, in the history of culture? Well, yeah, it's it's very interesting, New Zealand, because we're, we're a small little place, um, but we've always been connected with the bigger world. Um, you know, once once the nation state itself was born in the 18, in the 18, uh, 1860s, maybe. And so we've always been connected and we've always been pretty good at uh, taking up new technologies. And with a small country like this, you can actually kind of see the effects. I mean, uh, if I was writing in, say, the States or the UK, I would probably have written a book just about radio or just about records, you know, but you can see how they interlink here because we're, we're so small. So New Zealand history has been so far concerned with a lot of pressing issues we have to deal with to do things 
like the Treaty of Waitangi, you know, the colonial past, et cetera, et cetera, all that stuff. And technology has played a major part in the development of New Zealand as a modern nation state. And that's been kind of ignored um, to some degree by historians. And so I was trying to trying to um, bring out how technology is important to our culture, how New Zealand's always been connected to the world. You know, the you know, the, the sort of nationalistic perspective um, we sometimes get caught up in. And a lot of people think about New Zealand culture, you know, we're all so proud of Peter Jackson and the Lord of the Rings taking the culture out there. But um, I was trying to follow uh, the work of people like Gibbons, and we're thinking about the world in New Zealand. So we're stressing the connections with the wider world and, and the popular cultures and other cultures that, uh, that we all participate in and have shaped our culture too. I think one of the things that really comes through in the book is this relationship between technology and culture. And New Zealanders were innovative in the sense that they kind of took technologies and made it their own. Uh, Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the great cultural tropes in New Zealand is is the sort of number eight fencing wire. You know, the New Zealander, usually male subject, is meant to be so resourceful, you know, we can do anything. And speaking as a man who can barely change a spark plug, if I ever did, I find this quite ridiculous. So so technology has been a major part of, of what goes on here. And there are a lot of attitudes about it, but actual analysis of what it means in, in shaping the culture itself. And kind of the way we draw in from overseas um, things like music, uh, literature, etc. We we turn it around, we change it, and we send it out again. And um, so you get musical genres like, say, reggae, which arrived here, and the Māori and Pacific communities really picked it up and turned it into a form of expression for their concerns. Um, same with rap and hip-hop when that arrived here. Um, so these technologies I was dealing with, going right back to the late 19th and early 20th centuries, that brought in things like ragtime and then blues, country, you know, all that stuff, the sounds of, modern, of modernity. And then New Zealanders took them and did things with them and sent them out. But we also kind of enjoyed listening to the stuff from overseas. You know, American films, they were much cooler to us than New Zealand films, but of course, the, the preachers and the teachers didn't like them because, of course, we're learning slang, you know, so same outrage as, as we get with sort of a gangster rap, if you like, you know, the forces of morality object to these new cultural inputs via technology. So the book is split into kind of three major te- technologies, records, radio and film. So let's talk about the first one. You know, one of the things that was interesting is that if you read the book, you may learn a lot of new names that are not necessarily household names. I'm not sure if they are in New Zealand, but uh, who's Peter Bohana, and what can you tell us kind of about the business side of early uh, sound? Yeah, well, um, Peter Bohana, he he was a guy who was um, hired by the gramophone company in the UK to come and open up the Australian and New Zealand markets. You know, the, the, rec- the recording industry was global from the get-go. This is 1900 we're talking about. You know, they wanted the w- widest possible markets. So they sent people around to various parts of the world. And he wound up here and he he kind of set up deals with various um, shops, you know, general stores and places like that. So they would they would sell the records from there and he, he sort of ran it and made sure the money happened from over in Sydney. But record shops were soon established by about 1908. You've got a chain of specifically record stores, the talkeries, 
um, operating all through New Zealand, um, and department stores are selling them too, music stores selling records too. So these are new social spaces too. You know, the, I mean, there's a whole lot of, well, some literature out there about the social role of record stores, and they've been around for a long time, and people have used them as leisure resorts and places to find out things and hang out for a long time. So, so people like him, they kind of opened it up and got the industry underway. Always controlled from overseas, though. We didn't actually... Um, not until a song called Blue Smoke in the late 1940s did New Zealand have its own kind of record made in New Zealand, you know, a song written in New Zealand, recorded in New Zealand, made in New Zealand. Before that, they were all recorded in Sydney for international labels like EMI or whatever. And can you tell us a little bit about the, the Maori music records that were produced actually by global music companies, not locally, right? Absolutely, yeah. They, they, they're beautiful records too. Singers like Anahato, the Tahiwis, the Rotorua Māori Choir, they, they were made in the late 20s, early 30s. And international companies, they competed with each other to record sort of people singing in Māori. And the, these songs are quite often pop songs, which are done into Māori, or they're traditional Māori songs, which have been, you know, turned into pop songs, if you like, you know, jazz arrangements, that sort of stuff, which did cause a bit of trouble with some people. But this was once again part of the strategy with the record companies. They go into a country and they record the local music and sell it to the locals. You know, if they're not doing this out of philanthropy. Um, this is obviously, you know, record companies have always been about money. The industry of human happiness is, is all about money. So, and those recordings are absolutely wonderful. And so, so the first sort of New Zealand recording as such really dates from 1927, but it was made by, you know, an overseas record company. If part one about the records kind of, um, you know, raises issues about, about business, I thought part two about radio really issue, uh, raised issues about government. Um, you talk about how important the radio was to the military and then kind of the professional professionalization of the radio and, and how the broadcasting licenses worked. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what it meant to now have radio in New Zealand with the speed of communication that it brought and the oversight that it needed? Yeah, well, being a, what is it, the last settled place on the planet, you know, it's the furthest place from anything apart from Antarctica, you know, so so we're surrounded by the sea, which is a highway, you know, it's not a barrier, it's a highway. So radio communication was so important to us straight away with the um, using Morse code, you know, on the wireless days. And so the government stepped in very, very early, 1903, they really controlled it. And after World War One. Um, where some of the military stuff was happening in Mesopotamia, um, Iran, Iraq, that area there, forerunner of the Five Eyes system in many ways. But after World War I, when broadcast radio got underway, music and voices and so on, we kind of followed the British model, the BBC model, um, public service, because we were a British colony and, and very, very British, as it were, more British than the British. So we kind of followed that. But we've always had this undertone going of commercialism as well. But... The way radio went through the period I'm, I cover um, up to 1940, really, really um, the government stations working with the idea of the public interest, you know, educate, inform, entertain. Um, they, they were really the, the main things with some little tiny private stations around the edges. And for a country as isolated and mountainous as New Zealand radio was very important for the, you know, the Benedict Anderson idea of national identity and um, the national imaginary being forged through radio. And once again, it connects us with the rest of the world. And we're getting radio serials from overseas. We're getting programs with shortwave. You know, you could pick up 
American radio on some nights. And so people were listening to the Carter family, you know, on those big Mexican stations and picking up new music. So, so radio once again links us with the rest of the world rather than use this plucky little New Zealand sending out its signals, you know, to the world. We're, we're actually picking a lot up and that's shaping the culture once again. The radio serials, like the films, were kind of concerns for the way children spoke and the sort of attitudes in them. So, you know, the the media, once again, people are working out what to do with it, and it's conflicting with the sort of semi-puritanical attitudes that existed at some times too. I want to ask you about early film, which makes up the third part of the book. A New Zealander who went to a film, you know, movie theater in the early 20th century, uh, what was the experience like and, and what changed uh, later in the 1920s uh, when there was actually uh, what we call the talkies? Yeah, well, gosh, I, I really am personally am a huge fan of the pre-synchronized movies, you know, what we call the silent films. I, I think that actually attained a beautiful art form, um, you know, by the late 20s. Talkies ruined things in many ways. But um, <laughs> like all, all around the world, um, if, if you went to a film in New Zealand before the talkies, you never knew what you were going to hear. You might hear actors narrating it. You might hear someone supplying music on a piano. You might hear an orchestra. You might hear someone with a banjo. You just It was so varied. It just depended where you were in the cities with the big, gorgeous theatres, you know, those sort of gilded palaces of cinema. Um, yeah, you'd have something like maybe 15, or 15 musicians playing scores written specifically you know, for that film um, and sent out with, with the prints. In other places, you leave the cities, you go to some, you know, little little tiny town. There'll be someone playing a piano and they're, they're kind of improvising and just grabbing whatever they can. Oh, look, there's a cowboy chase. Let's use the William Tell Overture gallop, you know, all that sort of stuff. So <laughs> so this is what gets me pre-talkies, pre, um, as opposed to the way modernity tended to standardise all our cultural experiences. You know, if you've got records, you're going to hear the same record it's going to sound the same every time you play it. A radio serial sounds the same. But with the early cinema, the, the sounds you would hear were just so varied and so unpredictable. And people had a lot of fun with it. And it sort of ran counter to the to the idea of, of the standardization we get in modernity. And then, of course, the talkies came in. And then um, one, of the, one of the main effects with the talkies was, of course, music, um, the musicals and all that sort of stuff. Once again, bringing in all, all the really cool new songs, which you could, you could buy the cheap music to, or you could buy the records. And the record companies would put out two or three different versions each because everyone's milking the market for what they can. So, you know, tiptoe through the tulips. That's a, that's a very odd, famous example. There are there at least, I don't know, I've seen at least three or four different recordings you could have bought while the film was out, um, you know, and take your picks. So everyone's milking it. But the film's become another way of promoting music and promoting standardised recorded sounds as well. Uh, last question, Peter, before I let you go, and, and that is, you know, at the same time that the, you know, the, the country and its people were, were moving towards more advanced technologies and new forms of listening, were there efforts to suppress these new forms to, to kind of keep things, you know, the status quo as it was? Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Well, not really as such. New Zealanders, when, when something new comes along, we've tended to go, wow, that looks cool. Let's use it. You know, we can we can really use that. Um People, people kind of were, were happy to adapt as, as things came along. So when after – this is kind of outside the period I dealt with – but after um, – when vinyl, for instance, came in, that was fine. I mean, the thing that governs consumer choice tends to be convenience if we talk about recordings. You know, we use MP3s, and it, it really is a horrible format 
quality-wise. Um, you know, it's compressed. It's it's basically an illusion, but it's the convenient thing to do. That's, you know, that's the old joke about vinyl. I I buy them because of the expense and the inconvenience. You know, that's kind of one of the things people say. So so it was the same with the old records. You know, the wax cylinder was actually a better quality format than the 78 but the 78 was much more easier to use so so of all the consumer choices that came along um whatever was more convenient is what people would tend to go for and and we sort of have followed a lot of the trends like you know most radio listening is in cars now etc etc because of the way um you know tv took over in the 60s so yeah the the technologies we have we new zealanders were quick to seize them and try them and sometimes use them in surprising ways but always happy to adapt to whatever came along that kind of hooks us up with the rest of the world. Yeah. Peter, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. That's Peter Hoare. He's a senior lecturer at the Auckland University of Technology. His new book is The World's Din, Listening to Records, Radio, and Films in New Zealand, 1880 to 1940. It's published by Otago University Press in March 2018. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.